Well, today's Mother's Day, but I'm not going to preach to mothers. <clears throat> but what we're going to preach about certainly has to do with mothers. A mother is a woman who has born at least one child, and that child comes through the agency of a man who is the father of that child. And God sanctions that union only in marriage, which fits his plan for a family. And that plan was developed when God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, who were male and female, and God brought them together in the first marriage relationship, which made them one, totally compatible with each other. But since the fall of man, God's foundation for marriage uh, has really been fouled up by our sin. And even God's Old Testament people failed to keep his purpose as husbands took more than one wife and began to divorce their wives. The modern church of evangelical Christians is guilty of breaking God's marital foundation as well. Many of us have been touched by this in some way. We've experienced it ourselves or are close to someone who has. We know the trauma that divorce causes. We know the heartache the sorrow, the feelings of anger and hurt and bitterness, resentment that lead up to it and also follow it. It damages the soul. It destroys a marriage. It devastates the children and it tears a family apart. In the United States, somewhere between 41 and 49% of married couples get divorced. And the average span of those marriages is only eight years. Now, I took some time to figure out approximately how long the people in our church have been married, and the average is about 40 years. So we're doing uh, pretty good, and uh, I don't project any of us is going to go through this process of divorce. But uh, the national divorce rate is actually falling, but only because the marriage rate is falling as well, and more couples are choosing just to live together instead of getting married. And also, in the United States, we have the highest rate in the world of children living with a single parent. 23%, almost one out of every four. So it's good for us to be reminded from God's word of his purpose and his plan in marriage. And the Lord Jesus doesn't really dwell in the passage we read earlier on the issue of divorce. Rather, he goes back to the beginning, the foundation of God's purpose in the marriage union. And the main point is not how you view what is right or legal to break up a relationship, but how you view God's word and what he uh, wants you to do. When we determine to have the right attitude about the basic institution of society, we're on the road to a long and productive and joyful marriage. Now, no matter what our background is today, no matter what has happened in the past, what Jesus instructs applies to today and each day going forward. The biblical view of marriage and our determination to live by it is the greatest preventive of divorce. 
So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for the institution of marriage. And Lord, even though we as human beings have messed it up so often, uh, it still hasn't changed the fact that you created this for the blessing of mankind. We pray, Lord, you help us to build strong marriages and strong relationships between man and wife and provide a stable place uh, for our family, for our children to grow. Those of us who have gone beyond that stage still have grandchildren, and we pray, Lord, we would be a strong foundation for them as well. So, Lord, bless your word to our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in verse 1, we have some more information, more background on the progress that Jesus and his disciples are making from the northern regions of Galilee down to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified. And it seems that they uh, have left Capernaum, where we uh, saw them last time, they're they're moving south along the western bank of the Jordan River. And when we put uh, the other Gospels together, it seems that before they go in, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> go into Judea, they cross over into the region of Perea right across the way. And uh, that's where this situation is developing. And as usual, a great crowd gathers uh, to him. He takes the opportunity to teach the crowd once again. It seems that by this time in his healing ministry, uh, that's kind of um, falling aside. Uh, He's uh, bringing that to an end. We see a few uh, miracles occurring, but not what was going on at the beginning of his ministry. But when he has a chance to teach, he takes that opportunity. Now from this crowd a group of Pharisees approach him with a question about divorce. And the question itself reveals their, uh, their low view of a marriage relationship. So the first few verses here, we see a wrong view of marriage projected by the Pharisees and the question they ask the Lord Jesus. Now in verse 2, we have that question that inquiry, but we also have a hint here as to the intent in which it was asked. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? All right, so under Jewish law, a woman could not divorce her husband, but a man was allowed to divorce his wife. Now, this had developed over many, many years, and it's really kind of as common as it is today. And when we put Matthew's account together with this one, we find that they were asking, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? What were the legal uh, reasons that you could uh, submit uh, for a divorce? Well, The intent behind that question, though, is not so much for information, but for entrapment. Because you see those two little words, testing him. They asked the question to test Jesus, to tempt him. And they were always trying to do this. This this group of uh, Jewish scribes or um, uh, officers of the law, men who understood the Old Testament law, 
of God. And they're always trying to discredit Christ, always trying to put him in a bad light. So let's see how that is so in this scenario here. Now, no doubt they believe Jesus had a restricted view of divorce similar to John the Baptist. Okay, they're of the same ilk. They're now in this region of Perea that was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And you remember that this ruler is the one who put John the Baptist to death. So it may well be that if Jesus disavowed divorce like John the Baptist did, as he uh, complained to Philip about his wife, uh, or Herod about his wife Herodias, then perhaps Jesus would also get into trouble with the ruler, Herod, put in prison, maybe even executed. So that could have been going on in their mind. Then also, although the Jews generally accepted the legality of divorce, there were different opinions as to what was allowable cause for it. And these views were interpretations of Deuteronomy 24, and this is what the, they're quoting here when Jesus asked the question uh, about what Moses said a little bit later on. Now, according to that passage, a man could divorce his wife for some uncleanness. That's all the definition that you have, so it kind of leaves things wide open for various interpretations. And those who followed a rabbi by the name of Hillel in the time of Jesus, or previous to that time, took a broad liberal approach to its meaning. And if you look at some of the writings they had about it, basically, you could divorce your wife if she burned your supper. Now imagine that. That's a pretty easy way to get out of it, isn't it? Or even if you found a woman more attractive than your wife. And just think, that's just not fair. Now, another rabbi by the name of Shammai was much more conservative, and he believed that that uncleanness should be restricted to moral infidelity. And that's pretty much it. And obviously, he was of the minority opinion in the day. Now, the Pharisees reasoned that whichever side Jesus fell on, Hillel or Shammai, that would offend the members of the other group, the men of that group, and again, put him in bad light. So their whole intent here was to somehow discredit Jesus because they, they hated him so much. Now, in answer to this, Jesus really spoils their intentions by revealing the real reason behind people wanting to get divorced. And this is what he says in verse 3. Now, he answered them and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now, this would, this would be um, something right down their alley. Jesus knew it. These are the scribes. These are the masters of the law. They would know the passages. They would have something to support what they're trying to do here. So he asks, what did Moses command you? And they respond, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and this is what they said. Moses permitted 
a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her or to put her away. Now, uh, this is not really a commandment. And even they say Moses permitted this situation to be. So Moses never commanded anybody or encouraged anybody in his time period to divorce his wife, but it was something that was obviously going on. And we would have to assume in the societies around the, the nation of Israel, it was going on and it's now come into the nation itself. So what Moses did, he allowed this, uh, 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 he restricted it, if you will, by what he did in those few verses. And this uh, protected, in some respect, the wife who was divorced. Uh, It protected her in the sense that when this uh, certificate was written and she could take it in her hand, and someone else wanted to marry her, she could prove she had not been um, an immoral woman. Okay? And she then could be married. She wouldn't be left destitute. A woman back in that age doesn't go out and find a job. Uh, She's taken care of by her husband or her extended family. If she had been immoral, well, she could have been stolen to death back in that day. Okay, so Jesus then reveals the true reason for this allowance, for this restriction, if you will, because it goes on to say, if that woman's husband divorced her, the original husband could not take her back. That wouldn't be right or fair. Now, in verse 5, Jesus really tells them what the issue was. What's the real problem behind this whole thing? And he says in verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. He wrote you this allowance. He wrote you this restriction because you had a hard heart against the the will of God. Now, it's interesting here that the term that's used, translated a hard heart, um, alludes to being stiff-necked. And uh, stiff-necked, would have rung a bell with them because if you had a cow who was stiff-necked, it means it resisted the yoke. It would not submit to the yoke. It was pretty much useless. And it became known to be a sign of stubbornness. And so what uh, the Lord's saying here is that they were stubborn in obeying God's command between a man and woman, the married relationship. One commentator wrote, it thus refers here not to men's cruelty toward their wives, but to their rebellion against God's will for them. The original intent of bringing one man together with one woman in holy matrimony. So this really kind of shows us the low view that Pharisees and some Jewish men had toward women and the marriage relationship. They were more concerned about the legality of divorce procedures than loving and caring for the wife that God gave them. And that cannot be the attitude of Christ's disciples toward their spouses. Now we bring it up to modern times, a low view of the marriage bond certainly contributes to the high divorce rate in our society. Um, In general, we have a very relaxed view 
on morality that inhibits solid marriages. Promiscuity is just rampant, and uh, uh, sex is no longer viewed as uh, something sanctioned within marriage and that God himself approves of and ordained. Uh, We've just gone off uh, the wall with that. Sometimes people choose to live together to see how things work out before making a marital commitment, but this doesn't really improve the divorce rate if they do get married. Now, divorce today is really fully in line with that of Hillel in old times. No-fault divorce. The focus is not on what holds us together, what complements us, but on what makes us incompatible. And you probably all heard the biggest reason for divorce in our country today is incompatibility. Now, that's kind of ironic to me because when you get married, you don't feel incompatible. You feel very compatible. You think this is going to last forever and ever. So what do you do to get to the point where you're incompatible and you got to separate? So it's an issue of, of attitudes and working things out, things of that nature. Now, among Christians, who incidentally, uh, the divorce rate among evangelical Christians, according to some studies, is a little bit over one out of four. But what contributes to that? Well, mainly our failure to submit to our responsibilities as a husband or a wife. Husbands don't love their wives, cherish their wives as God said they should, as Christ does the church. Wives don't respect their husbands. Uh, They don't portray a meek and quiet spirit. And this all uh, issues and, and, and problems. So we worry more about what our spouse is supposed to be doing and what they're supposed to be obeying instead of what God says I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. Now Christ's answer to the question of this whole thing goes back to the basics, to the very beginning. So the second thing we see here is the divinely ordained institution of marriage beginning in verse 6. And Jesus doesn't really mention causes of divorce. He simply reverts to the beginning of creation itself, reminding his audience of God's original intention for humanity. It's dependent upon his design of male and female and the one flesh principle of marriage. So let's uh, take a look at this. Now, verse 6. Jesus says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. That's science, male and female. So when God created humanity, we have this divine design of the creator of the human race. He made them male and female. So this was his design in the animal kingdom leading up to uh, the, the creation of Adam. There were two sexes, there were two genders for the propagation of the different species. Then man, the apex of creation, was made after God's image and followed the same sexual pattern, male, female, man, woman, masculine, feminine. And he created them as intellectual, 
volitional, emotional, and social beings. And he made them biologically compatible, a perfect fit for each other. And his purpose was to propagate the human race through loving family units that he could bless. Now, the Lord created Adam and Eve to be compatible with each other. And when they come together in marriage as a man and a woman, they're two individuals who really uh, meld into a whole being. They're an expression of God's image in humanity, both male and female. They were created to be monogamous. One man was created, one woman for the man. Not two, not three, not four, but one. So monogamous marriages are in God's plan. Adam, you'll remember, all the animals were brought to him and he named them, he got to know them, and uh, there was no perfect compliment in the animal kingdom for him. He realized he was alone. God knew this, and so God made a perfect completer for him in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, that's the idea behind the helpmate. He made a helper for Adam that indicates to us that Adam alone was not complete. He needed a complement. He needed a completer. He needed a helper. And she, of course, was not complete without a husband. So that's the way God designed it. The two of them will come together and they'll live in holy matrimony and they'll love and serve God. Any aberration of this design, any denial of it is a perversion of God's intent and purpose for humanity. Two men or two women cannot reproduce. They do not complement each other. They cannot propagate the race. They're not designed to be together in that way. God's design is according to his creation of the human race. This is true science. It's biology. It's reality. It's foundational truth. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. This is the way God set it up. Now, let's go on here to that one flesh principle in verses 7 and 8. Okay, the Lord says, for this reason, in other words, that God made them male and female and put them together, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one. Okay, so the one flesh principle. Again, the divine design for marriage was to perpetuate the human race So as time moves forward, you have families, you have husband, wife, children, and as they grow up, the Lord says, well, for this reason, then a man's going to leave his family, leave his father, leave his mother, and he's going to be joined to his wife. So uh, this, of course, would be true for the woman as well. Um, So they, they in turn, raise a new family uh, under his headship, And then their children go out and they get married and they have families. And before long, the human race develops uh, to what it is today, 8 billion people. It's still God's plan, even though many people 
don't believe it, they don't accept it, they don't understand it, they try to pervert it in some way. This has been foundational to humanity for thousands of years until the last uh, 50 or so. A family that abides by this plan provides the best environment for the health and welfare of husband, wife, father, mother, and children. Now, the principle of two becoming one in marriage involves a threefold process. And uh, we, can, we can make them rhyme. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. First of all, a man has to leave his father and his mother in order to be joined to his wife. And of course, by implication, the woman has to do the same thing. So they, they must separate from their parents to begin a new relationship. They're no longer under the old authority. They're establishing a new authority. And the man is responsible to be the head of his home and his family. And the wife is his helper and completer. And together they raise that family and hopefully uh, successfully, and they go out and repeat the process. And when that doesn't occur, when you don't leave your previous family and you're too close, well, that can lead to issues and problems as well. Then he is to <coughs> cleave to his wife or be joined to his wife. And interestingly, that verb means to glue together, to become one. So that suggests intimacy and closeness based upon mutual love and respect. Your spouse should be the closest person to you, aside from the Lord, in this life. Not your father, not your mother, not your children. None of those should interfere or take precedent over the husband-wife relationship. And finally, the two weave a new life together based upon their unity or their oneness. So this would include biological intimacy, but it's much deeper than that. Uh, they're no longer two separate individuals, but one in love and purpose and service. When God brought the first couple together, he did not call them the Adamses or the Adams family. They, he called them Adam, one. One flesh can't be separated into two. Quoting another commentator, they are no longer two independent beings who may choose to go their own way, but a single indivisible unit. Now, that's the basic teaching. What conclusions then are drawn from those principles? Well, we find this going on a little bit later as the disciples uh, with Jesus enter a home and they uh, ask a little bit more about this. And the marriage union was intended to be uh, permanent, as we see Jesus responding. Okay, so they, they enter a house and they ask him again about the same matter because it's not what they've been used to hearing. It's not what uh, controlled even their society. And so he says to them these certain things. Okay, so what God joins together in the end of verse 9 let not man separate. So marriage is intended to be permanent, indissoluble. Man doesn't really have the right to tear apart his marriage bond. 
D.A. Carson wrote, The one flesh is every marriage between a man and woman is an enactment of, of and testimony to the very structure of humanity as God created it. When we break our marriage vows, when we deconstruct that relationship, we are striking at the very foundation of God's creative design. Most couples who marry in the United States repeat vows before a gathering of people. For Christians, those vows are made before God and his church, and they are the most serious vows you can make in your life. To break them is to sin against God as well as your partner. Remember that uh, last phrase, that last promise is to love and cherish each other till death do us part. So what then about divorce and remarriage? As I explained and as Jesus explains, uh, this was against the norm even of Jewish society. Men were basically free to divorce their wives for nearly anything that might displease them. So when the disciples come into the house, they want to find out more about this. And the Lord's answer here in Mark is very strict. He gives no reason for divorce and he adds that remarriage after divorce perpetuates sin for both the man and the woman. He says they commit adultery, whether it's the, the wife or the husband. That's kind of thrown in here as well. So if the person who initiates the divorce remarries, they commit adultery against their former spouse. And this was radically different from the current perceptions of the day. A Jewish man who became divorced was not thought of as an adulterer if he remarried. So what Jesus says reveals the truth of the situation. A divorce does not necessarily annul the one flesh union without consequences. And although a Jewish woman did not have this recourse, a Roman woman did. And remember, Mark's audience is not Jewish, it is Roman. And so he's kind of addressing the situation in Rome. Uh, and the general principle is that if you divorce and remarry, you also are committing another sin. So um, uh, why does he do this? Why does he mention this? Well, again, uh, he doesn't bring up Matthew's exception clause because of his Roman audience. And likely that was because the Roman viewpoint was even looser than the Jewish one in his perceptions of divorce and remarriage. And he doesn't want to give his readers, his Christian readers there, an out when it comes to the seriousness of the marital relationship. And that's the way we should be thinking about it as well. Now, he doesn't deal with it. I'm only going to mention that um, according to Matthew, uh, a person could become divorced because of marital infidelity. But again, 
It's not commanded. It's not necessarily God's will. You don't have to do that. Because even in a situation of that nature, when forgiveness is given, reconciliation, biblical counsel, that can mend that situation as well. So it's not something we have to do. We're not commanded to do it. And then the other place is 1 Corinthians 7, the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Um, And I'm not going to really get into that at all. But as married couples... We work on building a relationship that is divorce-proof. It does take effort, work, introspection, putting your spouse above yourself and obeying what God says about your role as either husband or wife. All that the Bible says about marriage should be incorporated into our relationships as a Christian. And we do it now, no matter what has happened in the past. We can't change that. We can't go back. We, we go from this point forward. So we need to be determined to treat our spouse or our future spouse with love and respect. And you need to look to God's grace and his Holy Spirit, a power to maintain a healthy marriage relationship. As husbands... We're commanded to uh, uh, love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's selflessly. And we need to grow in that Christ-like love so we can pattern our marriage after that love. As wives, the Bible says you need to maintain a respectful attitude, uh, a submissive spirit to the leadership of your husband, a meek and quiet spirit. And we can't do these things on our own. We can't do them in the flesh. We have to depend upon the Lord to help us. We need to be able to own up to our failures, to overcome our weaknesses, and to give uh, or, or to live out our responsibilities before God and our spouse in the strength of his spirit. And may God give us the grace and the strength to do so. Heavenly Father, we are again thankful today for the way you put things together. We're thankful, Lord, today that you've ordained the marriage bond. You have blessed those who enter into it. And we know, Lord, that according to your teaching, any other uh, way of coming together is, uh, is not according to your will. It's sinful, and one day it'll have to be judged. Lord, we do pray you'll bless our uh, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives today. Help them to continue to maintain a uh, strong and healthy relationship. Help them to be an example to our uh, young ones growing up. And Lord, help us to uh, reflect a Christ-like attitude in uh, all that we do, but especially in our homes and families. And bless your word today to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.